0: If you'd take your Bibles to Luke 21, I'll be there for just a moment to introduce the lesson and to say just a couple of things to this congregation here. Luke 21. Jesus was good at everything that he did, but there were certain things about the way Jesus lived and saw the world that I'd like to get much better at. And here in Luke 21 is one of those instances. I'll read this and then have a couple of things to say about it. Verse 1 of Luke 21 says And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. Jesus was with his apostles in the temple complex, and there's a contrast here about what people were looking at and talking about. You see there in verse 6 when Jesus says, as for these things you're looking at. You see, they saw all the gold and the flashy things and they just thought that was magnificent. And Jesus said, none of this is going to last. But Jesus had just been observing in the first couple of verses a woman who probably no one else really noticed doing something that... He decided to tell us about that would last forever. Here's what this has to do with me. I'm somebody that sometimes can be a little bit distracted by the flashy things. Um, You know, I come down to a place like this and Brent Kirchville preaches here. Did you know, guys? Did you guys know Brent's a little bit famous? Did you guys know that? Like, nobody really could pick him out of a lineup, but like, All the stuff that Brent produces and writes and all the things that he does for this good church affects hundreds and thousands of people because of the work that he does. And everywhere I go, when I talk about Brent, they know who that is, uh, at least online. And and then you got guys like Barry Kircheville who come down here, and he's a legend, kind of. like Eric Borlaug's a young preacher, but... People know who he is. I'm, I'm one of those guys that sometimes can think, man, what a blessing it is to know these great men, which is true. But I'll tell you something. They've all influenced me in some way. But there are people that I've interacted with in my life that nobody knows. They don't know. Nobody knows their names. They're not known outside of the little place where I grew up nola fleetwood and donna booth and some of those women that changed my life as a young man and it occurs to me that that's what it's like when i do meetings like this um i get excited about the people that i, I know the most but then i meet people that i didn't even know were here uh had such a great meal tonight uh with dathan and jennifer heard their story and i won't forget them Uh And it doesn't really matter if somebody is well-known or not well-known. God can teach us things from really the simplest of places sometimes. And I would like to get better at just noticing that. Now, this church is encouraging, and I just want you to know that every one of you. Micah, you've been an encouragement to me this week. I'm not going to forget your courage this week and you wanting to do what's right and just all of that. But Bible study can be like this too. Sometimes scripture has such big characters throughout the story that we get distracted by looking at them and we forget that there are people throughout scripture that may not be as well known, but teach us very important lessons. And that's really what this is all about this week is about influence and how anybody, no matter who they are, or how well known they are, can be an influence in people's lives, just like this widow. I want to take you back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25, and I want to talk about a woman in that scripture named Abigail. Abigail is sometimes overshadowed by people like David. Actually, this is the chapter where Samuel dies, and that's kind of a big deal. David is part of the story, and David's such a big character. Sometimes even Abigail's husband is more well-known than her, infamously so. His name was Nabal. He was a fool. But God told us a story here in this chapter about this beautiful woman who I will tell you up front, I believe is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It's rare that women foreshadow the Christ, but I believe she does, and I'll try to make my case. But she's also in a way a foreshadowing of us as the people of God. But more than that, just the simple story that we're going to look at here. She was an influence to people around her. uh, And God wanted to tell us her story. Let's start here in chapter 25, 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. Then Samuel died and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. Now we'll pick up there in just a minute. Now we're told that Samuel dies, and Samuel had been such a huge influence in the life of Israel, being the last judge who had anointed King Saul But God, you remember, had grown weary of Saul and his disobedience. And so God had Samuel anoint a man after his own heart, a man named David. Now, to understand this story, you have to kind of know what's going on in the life of David. Just real quick, go back to chapter 22, 1 Samuel 22. It says there in verse 1 that David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, David was on the run living in caves because Saul wanted him dead. And he had just had a run in with some of the Philistines here. And he goes to this cave and it says there in verse one that when his brothers and his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to David and he became captain over them. Now, there were about 400 men with him. I call this David's 3D army because of the 3D words there. Everyone in debt, everyone distressed, and everyone discontent. Bunch of losers, right? Think about that crew for a minute. And I think in this text, David is a foreshadowing of Jesus as well. Think about it. He's the rightful king of Israel, but unrecognized as such. The only people he can get around him to be the leader of are those in debt and distressed and discontent. Later on, the son of David will come into the world and he is the rightful king of Israel, but he's unrecognized. And the only people he can get around him are those in debt and distressed and discontent. But David's 400 strong 3D army here grows to about 600 in chapter 23, verse 13. He has now 600 men with him, and he's gallivanting around the wilderness with this crew. Now, I I wonder what most people would have thought about them. These weren't, you know, the kind of people that people would have respected, if they had debt, then they owed somebody. If they were distressed and discontented, you know that life had kind of beat them up. And so here's this bunch of losers gathered around wandering through the wilderness. And that's what we have here in the story. David is with these men down in that region of the, of the land. Now we're introduced to two other characters. A man named Nabal, who the Bible describes as being very rich. I guess that's right. I don't have any sheep or goats, but he had a lot of them. So that's how they measured things back then. But it also says that he was harsh and evil in his dealings. Uh, Dathan, Eric, and I had a conversation tonight with Jennifer there about the differences in culture between Jamaica and America. And one of the things he pointed out was how different a lot of us Americans can be in business. That we're not always trustworthy. Uh, that, you know, there's a lot of people who are rich, and the reason they're rich is because they are harsh and evil in their dealings. You can get to some pretty high levels being like that. And that was Nabal. Now, his wife is described as being intelligent and beautiful in appearance. She was uh, quite the woman. And I'll say more about that here in just a bit. Now, notice again in verse 5. David finds out that Nabal is shearing his sheep. It's probably after the winter. The shepherds have brought the sheep down from the from the hill country. Uh, and they're shearing the sheep, you know, getting ready for all of the things coming. And it's a festive time at the house of Nabal. So here's what David wants. Look at verse 5. Um, David says to his young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and, all, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day, Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. David takes 10 young men and say, it says, go greet Nabal in my name. Now that should have meant something. Everybody knew who David was by this point, not just in Israel, even in the land of the Philistines. When he had showed up there, they had heard the songs that were at the top of the international charts. You know, David is slain, Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. Everybody knows who David is. David thinks that by telling Nabal that these men are coming in his name, that maybe Nabal will have some respect for these losers. All these in debt and distressed and discontent. It's also not an unreasonable request. Do you remember that the law of Moses said to the rich, if you have a lot, I want, God wants you to take care of those that don't have a lot. When you plow your fields, plow them in a circle. Do you remember that? So that the corners wouldn't be plowed and the poor could come in and, and get what they needed. It's a great welfare system, by the way. They have to work a little bit, but there it is if they want to work for it. And God had also just told the rich to be mindful of their brothers and sisters who didn't have. So it's not unreasonable. It's also not unreasonable because David has been policing the area with his men, making sure no cattle rustlers come up and steal people's things. And it sounds like it's probably a season where in a really long time, that was the first time nobody had had anything stolen. He had done a service for Nabal. And his request is simply could we have something for what we've done? You see that verse 9 when it says that they say all these things and then they waited? Can you picture that? How long did they wait? Five minutes? Five hours? A couple days? I don't know. You ever talked to somebody and they just ignored you? you? You said something to them and it was kind of an important thing and they just acted like you weren't there. Now, maybe Nabal's trying to figure out what to say to these guys. But either way, Nabal's already showing himself to be kind of a jerk. Now watch what he says when he finally speaks up. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. When Nabal finally speaks up, here's what he says. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean I've never heard of him. Here's what he does mean. Who is he to me? Do you see what I have? Do you see what I've built? Do you see my kingdom? And here you've got a guy that really is nothing at all. He's out here in the wilderness and he insults these young men and David. And he says, there's a bunch of losers out here that every one of them's breaking away from their masters. You expect me to take my money, my meat, what I've worked hard for? And share it with people whose origin I do not know. And at that moment, Mabel sounds exactly like me. I'm an American. I grew up in San Diego, California. If I'm ever homeless, you'll know where to find me. San Diego, California. It's a great place to live, weather's good. I grew up in a place where everywhere I went, somebody was holding their hand up. And I remember I used to think like this. You expect me to take my money and give it to people whose origin I don't know? There's all kinds of people out here that have made a mess of their life. And you expect me to share with them? Now, time out. I know what we say about this. But if a man won't work, neither should he eat. Agreed. But there's wisdom to not just give money to people that are going to mess up their lives. You know, I I agree. There's wisdom in this. I just want to point something out that if that's your first thought, that is the spirit of Nabal. The spirit of Jesus speaks like this. Give to him who asks of you, expecting nothing in return. And that's all I'll say about that. But when the men return and report to David, David is insulted and he tells these men to grab their swords. And so 400 of these fellas head off towards Nabal's house to cut him down. 200 stay behind. I like how the Bible tells stories. You know, here you've got David coming with his men, but now the Bible switches back to Nabal's house. Look what happens back at Nabal's house in Verse 14. One of the young men told Abigail Nabal's wife saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day all the time that, 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 that we were there with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, No, and consider what you should do for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So back at Nabal's house, a servant goes to Abigail and says to Abigail some things that no servant in the ancient world would ever say to the wife of a man like this, unless everybody knew it was just the truth. How could how could a servant in that time go to the wife of the house and say, I can't even speak to him. Nobody can speak to him. The man's such a scoundrel, your version might say. My version says, he's such a worthless man. Nobody can talk to him. Some of you live in houses like this. Nobody knows it, but in your house, there's somebody who just can't be talked to mom, dad, one of the kids. And so everybody else in the house knows that you just can't be reasonable with somebody like this. And everybody just talks about it. This troubles me as a father, by the way. I watched my kids growing up and, you know, most of the time when they needed something, I could be like in the room and they would yell right past me and say, mom, and I'd be like, I'm right here. And she'd say, he's right there. And it, for a while, it troubled me. It, is she the one that they are always going to go to? Like it, it, in my house, do the people in my house know that if something needs to get done, she's the one to ask? Thankfully, as the kids got older, they did come to their father to ask important things about life and what was next. But look, when we assess our own homes or the life of our congregation, who is it that we go to? Are you one of those people that people come to and know that you can be talked to? Or are you one of the ones that's avoided? So there's an interesting thing going on in this story. You know, when he says to Abigail, know and consider what you should do, because here's what's about to happen. We find out how Abigail thinks in the next verse. Look at verse 18. So Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about, as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain, that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David. And more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. We'll continue that in a moment. Did you notice in verse 23? It says that Abigail hurried. Also in verse 18, it says that Abigail hurried. I like that about her. When she's presented with a problem, when she's in a scary situation, she just acts. Just like that. But when the servant said, hey, what should we do about this? Abigail, like, turns into my grandma. She just starts cooking food. You know, like, when you don't know what else to do, cook food. And if men are around, give them food. That's brilliant, by the way. <laughs> God, listen, she sends all that food ahead, and then she comes after him. Guys can't fight you with chicken legs in their hand. I mean, like, <laughs> there's just, that's just smart. I want to ask a question to the women Do you think Abigail was scared? In the ancient world, in a time when it really wasn't a woman's place to do something like this. Do you think she could have been thinking that this was the last thing she'd ever do? Heading off to meet a mob of angry men, a warrior who had slain his 10,000s with an army of 'er ne'er-do-wells who were angry about what's gone on. And she's going to put herself right in the front of these men. Do you think her heart's in her throat? Do you think she's saying her prayers as she rides her animal toward them? We'll come back to that. I want to make a couple of observations about this story, and then we'll finish it here in a bit. Uh, But first thing I want us to think about is how strange it is that these two people are married. You ever thought about that? How did Abigail and Nabal even end up together? I mean, he's harsh and evil. His name means fool. Her name means uh, father's delight or something like that. Father's joy. And this intelligent, beautiful woman is married to this monster. Have you ever met that couple? I have. And it's not always the woman who's wonderful and the man who's... I mean, I've met couples where the man is just a gentleman and and, and kind and godly, and and the woman is bitter and mean as a snake. And you kind of go, what's up with that? All right, a couple of options. Maybe when Nabal and Abigail first got married, maybe they were both unbelievers. Maybe they were both worldly. You ever seen that? Two worldly people get married And somewhere along the line, one of them decides, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to to serve God. That's a hard situation. Because as the woman or the man begins to serve God, they keep looking at their spouse, hoping that they'll join them. And Sometimes they never do. But you know, at least in that situation, the person who's doing the right thing can think something like this. I knew what I was getting into. I made my bed. I got a lie in it like that. I knew what I was marrying. But what if it's the other way? Have you ever seen two people who did love God get married? And then at some point one of them stopped loving God? Maybe that was the story. Abigail and Abel got married. He was godly and somewhere along the line, because of his greed, he became harsh. He became evil. He mistreated everybody around him. I know some people like this. That's even more difficult. Because this isn't what you signed on for, you know, you thought this person was going to be a different person. I don't even know that that would have been the case for these two. I think actually the third option is probably what really happened. And in those days, somebody arranged your marriage. So it wasn't even like Abigail got a choice why someone named Father's Joy would ever have been hooked up with a man like Nabel, I don't know what Abigail's father was thinking. But Abigail could have thought something like this. This isn't even my fault. I didn't even choose this one. I got put in this situation and, and it wasn't even my choice in the matter. You know what makes Abigail so great? Is whatever the story is, she doesn't use it as an, as an excuse to do what's wrong. Proverbs 31 says about the godly woman that the heart of her husband safely trusts in her because she does him good, not evil, all the days of his life. I've known people that because they believe they've been given the short end of the stick in a marriage. I have a friend, by the way, in India that recently got married. He didn't get to choose and it's working out pretty good. But if it doesn't, that's going to be a hard thing for him. People who are in these situations and do what's right are honored by God. Psalm 15 verse 4. Psalm 15 talks about people who are someday going to live with God. And there's a big list of characteristics. But in Psalm fifteen, four, here's the characteristic of somebody who gets to live with God. They swear to their own hurt and they do not change. It means they make a promise, and no matter what, keeping that promise, even if it hurts them, they don't change. I have a lot of respect for people like that. It's rare, though. You take this scenario into the world and you say, hey, I want to tell you about a woman who is beautiful and intelligent and kind and generous. And she's married to a man who mistreats her and everybody else. What should a woman like this do? People would say a woman like that needs to walk away, kick him to the curb. She needs to be a strong woman. Listen, God measures strength differently than we do. When I was growing up in San Diego, across the street, there was a family. Tom and Linda, Tom was a successful contractor, did really well, had a lot of money, his wife Linda and their two kids, Tommy and Monica, Linda started getting sick and pretty soon she couldn't see, then she couldn't hear, then she couldn't walk, then she was in a chair, I think it was muscular dystrophy or something like that. But then Tommy and Monica, my playmates, my friends begin to have some of the same symptoms. They started riding tricycles instead of bicycles. They started playing. We started playing baseball with a ball that would beep so they could figure out where it was to hit it. And then we couldn't communicate anymore. And they ended up in chairs. One day we woke up and Tom, the father, had disappeared. He was gone. And uh, Linda's parents moved into that place. And cared for those three souls until they were gone. I was just a little boy. But Tom would roll up every once in a while. Now to his credit, he let him live in that house. But he would roll up with his big new truck and his cute new wife. And I couldn't stand him. How could he leave? When God puts people in situations or allows them to go through things. The people that are the most influential, the most godly, the people that are the most in tune with who God really is, they find a way to do what's right, even at risk to themselves. And that's another lesson I want you to think about here. Abigail is more than just intelligent. She's righteous. Do you think Abigail was clever enough to have come up with a different plan? Like when the servant says to her, hey, no one consider what you should do. There's some people coming to kill your husband. Do you think she could have thought something like, my, 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 God works in mysterious ways. I think it's time for me to go visit my sister. That's all she had to do. Now, I understand somebody will tell me maybe she wanted to serve the whole, save the whole household and the servants and everything else. Well, fine, take them with you. I mean, she's probably clever enough to figure out a way to get him alone so that somebody can take care of the problem. But she doesn't do that. I want to show you what she does next. When she gets to David in verse 23. It says, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey. She fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, But now then let your enemies and those who seek your evil against my Lord be as an Now let the gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all of your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life? Then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. I love Abigail's humility. Six times she calls herself maidservant. Fourteen times she calls David Lord. She's brilliant to bring up Goliath. Did you catch that? She brings up the thing about the sling and the stone and reminds him of his past. Reminds him of what God had promised and what his future would be and and how she's concerned that someday when David does get to the throne, he might look back at this moment and regret it. What a loving woman this woman is. But there are two things that she says that trouble me. And I'm just honest about this. Verse 24, when she says, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. I don't like that. What are you talking about? It's not your fault, Abigail. We know who, who the enemy is here. We know who the problem is here. You know, it's hard when you hear people talk like this, when you know somebody's actually the innocent one, but they sort of say something like, I'll take the blame. We push back on that. That doesn't seem just or fair. But that's not nearly as hard. To understand is what she says in verse 28. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. What transgression? What had she done wrong? And this, at this moment, is when Abigail is a foreshadowing of our Savior. Long before Jesus stepped between the wrath of God and us, the judgment of the law and us, When Jesus stepped in front of us and said, I'll take the blame. Please forgive the transgression. I'll bear the weight of that sin. You had people that understood that that's what love is. Moses did it when God wanted to destroy the Israelites in the wilderness. Me, not them. Abigail does it when she stands in front of this, even an enemy of her own. While he was still an enemy, she loved him and and offered her life in his place. Would the world be different if we acted like this in our churches, in our families? Could you even imagine what politics would be like if somebody on this side of the aisle said, yep, that was our fault. Everybody lose their minds. They'd say, what are you trying to pull here? But if, if we could just learn to be these kind of people, the world would be different. David is impressed. Look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your demeanor, and bless or your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from um, shedding, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has restrained me from harming you. Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand uh, what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I've listened to you and granted your request. I love what David says here. First, he says, Blessed be God who sent you this day to meet me. Now you just read the same story I did. Did you see anywhere in the story where God told Abigail to go do this? Did God send her supernaturally? I think we get scared of talking like this. We hear other people talk like this and we don't want to be misunderstood. So we don't give God enough credit. But listen, anytime anybody does the right thing, do you know who gets the credit for that? God does. Not in some Calvinistic predestination kind of way. But the reason that Abigail was doing what was right is she'd been influenced by a God who told us what was right. Because the law of God is the law of God. Because love has been made manifest in the revelation of God. Anybody who ever does what's right, sure, talk about how well they've done. But give God the credit for the good things that people do. And David does that. Now, David says something else that took me a while to notice. Did you see there in verse 34, he said that the Lord had restrained him from harming her. You see that? I get this picture that when she came up, he grabbed his sword. Everybody began to pull their swords out. Who's this woman thinking she is to come to me? But something happened when she laid down flat on her face in the dirt and began to talk. Whether God stopped his hand or whether her words touched his heart, David was restrained from harming her. And thank God, because this is the point of the lesson. Abigail was the only person in this story doing what was right. I mean, sure, the servant was. Her husband isn't right. The king of Israel isn't right. A man after God's own heart. And and no matter what the consequence was going to be, she does what's right. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Sometimes it's a woman. Some people use it as an excuse when the elders aren't doing what's right when the preacher isn't teaching what's right, when the culture isn't doing what's right, when your marriage isn't going as it should, when the people in power in Washington aren't acting like they should, well, let's just shrug our shoulders and say, if you can't beat them, join them. No, you might be the only one, but you never know who you're going to affect. Because of Abigail, David does what's right. Watch what happens when she gets home In verse 36, Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king and Nabal's heart was merry within him and he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. You know, when Abigail goes home that night, He's drunk again. She's covered in dirt, tears. It's been a long day. He has no idea what what she's just done. Most women would have gone up and smacked him in the back of the head and say, do you know what I did for you again? She doesn't do that. Sounds like she goes to bed that night and sleeps well. And you know what the lesson of that is? If you're doing what's right, you may not ever hear your spouse, your friends tell you thank you. But I hope you sleep well at night because God sees it. And because God saw it and she wouldn't take her own vengeance, God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so God does a few days later, that man dies. And I'm not preaching this lesson to tell you that if you wait long enough, God's going to rub out your lousy spouse. That's not (laughs) why I'm doing this. But if you're able in this story, you better figure it out. Is God is watching. And if you're Abigail in this story. Don't give up. You do what's right. Because do you remember how the story ends? Abigail is not just a type of Jesus Christ. Abigail is a type of you and I. David hears that Nabal is dead. David remembers the goodness of this woman. David sins. Brings Abigail to himself. And Abigail becomes The bride of the king. And someday we will too. If we don't give up. Thanks for your attention. I appreciate it.